Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. I'm joined by this morning by Professor Owen Fenton and Dr. Dara Hulakon, research scientist based in Chagask in Moor Park. Gentlemen, uh, you're very welcome to our webinar this morning. And Pat uh, Murphy, you're joining us from uh, Wexford. Pat, you're going to help us uh, with the questions later on. Pat Murphy is head of our uh, Chagask Environment and Knowledge Transfer Program. Owen and Dara, maybe uh, Owen, starting with you, could you maybe just introduce uh, the work that you do in Chagask? And um, and we'll, we'll be talking more in depth then in relation to the, the, the water side of things, but maybe you could give us an, uh, an indication of the type of research work that you're, you're engaged in. Yeah, no problem, Mark. Um, hello, everyone. I suppose my background really is in soil science, water science, soil hydrology especially, but my background is very varied. Um, I would have studied earth science and then geology, so all rocks, and then I would have studied hydrogeology, so looking at water in the rocks, and then I suppose now I'm more concentrated on the whole continuum, soil and subsoil and bedrock, and how water travels around that landscape on the surface, but also subsurface. So soil, water, nutrients, um, a bit of everything. Very good, very good. And Dara, you're, you're, um, you, you cover the ecological side of things, but also looking at the, the sediments, uh, part of the, the water cycle as well. Perhaps you could give us a, an overview of some of the work that you're, you're engaged in as well. Okay, thanks Mark. Yes, yeah, so I'm a researcher with Chagas based down in Johnston and Castle, but split between Johnston and Moor Park. Uh, and my workload is split into as well, like, so it's covering farmland biodiversity, which is receiving a lot of attention in recent years, which is great to see. But then it's also looking at the wider biodiversity and water quality in particular, and looking at the ecology in, in streams and in, in open water and looking at the impact of sediment in particular in relation to how sediment can impact on, that, on these habitats, on these freshwater habitats and result in declining water quality. Great. So today we're going to be focusing on the, the water cycle and getting a better understanding of those interactions within the landscape. And uh, Owen, I think you're, you're going to kick us off with uh, uh, an overview and some, uh, I've seen your presentation, some excellent graphics there to to get that better understanding of, of that interaction of, of soil uh, with the landscape, water with the landscape. So Owen, if you could share your, your screen with us and uh, you're going to give us about a 15 minute presentation and then Dara is going to present after you then. And so I'd, I encourage uh, anybody who has questions throughout the presentation, do send them through to us using the Q&A tab at the bottom of your screen and uh, we'll allow about uh, 15 or 20 minutes for questions and answers at the end. So Owen, hand over to you and uh, we will talk to you after your presentation. Okay, thanks very much, Mark. So I suppose the title of my talk is The Water Cycle, Where Does All the Water Go? But equally, this could be called Where Do All the Nutrients Go? So what I'd like to convey today is, if we know where the water is going in the landscape, we will also know where the nutrients are going. So this is the water cycle. Everyone kind of recognizes this from our geography textbooks. Um, it's a cycle, it's a continuous cycle. It's been around for a very, very long time. And it's a series of flows and temporary stores. So let's look at precipitation. Precipitation, as we usually think of it in Ireland, is rainfall. But remember, precipitation can be solid, liquid, or a gas. And that falls to the ground surface. It's intercepted by plants or trees. And then it becomes infiltration or runoff. Infiltration starts into the soil and then it can't go anymore. Saturation occurs and runoff of water occurs across the surface and that interacts with surface water. Then you get, go back to your soil, you get percolation of this water deeper down and that eventually becomes recharged to groundwater. So we have a soil, a subsoil, and we also have bedrock underneath. And that is also, I suppose, separated into two parts. An unsaturated zone, which isn't full of water, and a saturated part underground, which is fully saturated. And a division line between those, I call it the water table. Now important to note here is that surface water and groundwater interact together. They're not separate. And indeed, groundwater and seawater interact. Then look at evaporation, water goes off the surface of, of these water bodies, condenses, we all know about condensation on windows, it gets heavy, 
and it falls again as precipitation. Now let's zoom into a landscape more at farm level. You can see the river here going through a lovely landscape and you can see all these lines and arrows here on it. What I'm just saying here is that water falls, infiltration occurs, but it also travels over the land and it travels along roadways on our farms, which it travels in our open ditches on farms, in our drainage systems, and it also ponds on the surface. Here are a few examples of, for example, down here, there's a spring developing, a spring and then connects with surface water. In karst landscapes, we have sinkholes and sinking streams, and that's all connecting to underground. Importantly here as well, you can see that groundwater feeds surface water. Have you ever thought, it's not raining today, but the river is still flowing? That's because, particularly in summer, um, the river is being fed by groundwater. Now let's zoom in again and look at a particular example on our landscape, springs. What are springs? There's a lot of mystery around springs. Here you can see on a hill slope, there's infiltration of, of rainwater into the soil, into a permeable soil, but underneath that soil, it's very, very slow, it's impermeable. So a tank of water starts to build up in the soil. And then that tank of water can't go anywhere, so it must move laterally and it pinches out along a hill slope as springs. Above, you get drier, I suppose, soils, and below this, you get wetter soils. Now, springs disappear sometimes. Why is that? In a drought, the storage tank starts to recede down and the spring turns itself off. Then in a wet period again, the storage tank builds up in the soil and the springs appear again. Springs are often drained off into open channels and in karst landscapes like this, you get sinkholes and sinking streams. Now think of an agricultural system on top of a vulnerable landscape like this. You'll often have the surface water disappearing underground, going through karst limestone and then reappearing as springs. So therefore you must be cognizant that there's a connection between the surface, subsurface, and surface water. We had a nitrate sensor in a spring which looked at flow. We also measured rainfall and we also uh, measured nitrate concentrations. Um, you can see here, as rainfall increases, the flow or discharge in that spring increases and the nitrate concentration went up as well. Really what I want you to look at here is in both those graphs, the shape is quite similar. So what we do at the surface influences nitrogen underground. Now let's look at rainfall. We live in North Atlantic Europe and we certainly live on an island, which we forget sometimes, and we have a lot of rainfall. If you draw a line between Belfast and Kerry, west of that, that line, we get a lot more rainfall, up to about three meters. And east of that, over in the sunny southeast, as I call it, we only get one meter of rainfall every year. But look at this graph. It's a U-shape. I want you to, to look at, we get rainfall in all of the months of the year, but in particular around the shoulders of the year, January, February, and then later September, October, November, we get most of our rainfall. But increasingly over time, this U shape is becoming shallower. And that's because we're getting more rainfall in our summer months. So episodic rainfall events in summer is very, very interesting and important in terms of runoff and especially runoff on roadways, which I'll get to later on. So now look at the soil. The soil really controls the infiltration or the movement of water across the soil. The soil, of course, is made up of different components, organic matter, and here in its simplest terms, gravel, stones, sand, silt, and clay. And in this experiment, if you fill the same container full of these materials and continuously poured water into them, how long would it take water to go through that? Gravel, two minutes, and look right over to your right. It would take 200 years for that same water to go through clay. So now let's mix them all together into a soil profile and you come up with two extremes. You come up with there on the left, well-drained soil, lovely brown colors. It allows most of the infiltration to go right through the soil profile. Then the other extreme, poorly drained. Here is where you have more silt and clay particles which slow everything down. And you get a lot of rate runoff and infiltration. So let's examine those two systems more clearly. The fast infiltration system, what do you get? Soils and subsoils are well-drained. The rock also helps water move underground. Think of karst or productive bedrocks. Here though, 
you get low amounts of runoff. You won't find a lot of infield drainage systems or open ditches. The dominant pathway is subsurface right down into the groundwater. And things like roadway networks are quite low in density. The nutrients lost here will be nitrate. Remember in the web series, Carl Richards covered nitrate. Phosphorus also to groundwater. Karen Daly covered that topic very well. Mitigation here, look at source and mobilization control right across large areas. Now look at the slow infiltration system. Here, it's harder to move water through the surface and it goes more over the top. But we are changing our landscape all of the time. We are speeding up water on these landscapes. Here, poorly drained mineral are indeed peaty soils. The rock underlain is poorly productive, it's less permeable. Here now, we're gonna get lots of runoff. We're gonna have lots of infield drainage systems which move water. We're trying to trick the soil to, to tell it it's better drained than it actually is. We have open drainage networks and a dominant pathway will be surface, but also shallow surface through these drainage networks. The roadway network is quite dense in these systems and it's more about phosphorus, but we shouldn't forget nitrogen. Nitrate goes into drainage systems and it gets converted in these heavy soils to ammonium. So we must think of ammonium leaving these systems as well. Here we need to break the pathway and that's very, very important in these types of systems. But remember, at catchment scale, all of these extremes and indeed all of the middle ground is completely mixed in when we get to catchment scale. We conducted a literature review some years ago and we looked at how long it would take for practice change to knock on to water quality change. And we looked at catchments up to about 100 kilometers squared. 25 studies were included and the results were quite interesting. Positive effects were found in 17 of the 25 catchments, but it took a long time for things to, to appear in the monitoring network, up to 10 years for a positive response to show up. And it took longer as a catchment got, got bigger. And here again is the big point response time increased as the transport pathway increased. And also, there's not only a natural time lag, but also a time lag in terms of implementation of measures. So what we find is we have two systems, the slow infiltration system with time lags of weeks to months, and here we must intercept surface pathways. Karen Daly calls these pinch points, and we must go after these pinch points in terms of fields, drainage, roadways, etc., and intercept the nutrients, the sediment being passed on into surface water. Then we have a fast infiltration system. Here, time lag is much longer, months to decades. And we have programs of measures that look at diffuse losses. But we need to manage our expectations here because of the length and the commitment required to change. Let's look at this red circle here. There's a lot going on in that, in that underground black box almost. We sure have nitrogen surpluses leaving our systems, but these surpluses feed a nitrogen storage component underground, and I call them biogeochemical time lags. We must attack that storage component and therefore have knock-on benefits for our water quality. My research looks at land drainage quite often and water quality response to different land drainage systems. In Ireland, we have two systems at play, shallow systems that target rainfall, and deeper systems that target that rise in water table. All of the systems that we've looked at have sediment, carbon, phosphorus, and ammonium loss. Not nitrate, but ammonium in Ireland. Now let's look at drainage research going forward. We need to focus on mineral and not peat soils. We need to avoid drainage in some landscape positions like floodplains. And we need to break the connectivity of drainage networks with things like farmyards, roadways, and surface water. And let's look at an example currently being made, uh, I suppose, out there on the landscape. I see a lot of gravel being filled up right to the surface in drainage systems, which it goes against practice. Okay, why? The top one is the perception that's out there. If you look at it, it shows that water is just moving to a pipe drain directly overneath the disrupted area. And that's actually an incorrect way of looking at drainage you actually get uniform flow into the soil and lateral movements to a pipe, which means we actually need less dense drainage systems out there. And indeed, there is no point in filling up 
your drainage systems right to the surface with gravel. It introduces environmental problems, but from a hydrology and water perspective, it's absolutely crazy. I'm not going to dwell on this bit too long because Dara is going to get into it more, but diffuse critical source areas of three components. Small or large pollutant source, here again, it's not about how big the source is, but it's the load of nutrients being lost from the source. If we have a high mobilization risk, and then an area with hydrologically sensitive area. This means that lots of runoff can occur. There's connectivity of this runoff delivery to a surface water pathway. And we need to break the, the pathway again in these areas. A new pathway, which I am doing a lot of research in, is in the Roadrunner, the EPA Department of Ag funded project. And it looks at farm roadways. These are hydrologically sensitive areas. Research from New Zealand shows that phosphorus and sediment is low on an annual basis from these roadways. But, 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 if you look at these in a different way, during the summer months, as I've indicated, we are getting more and more rainfall and more episodic rainfall events. And a study in New Zealand showed that from these hard surfaces, you get a huge proportion of losses during the summer months, which was going to become more and more interesting in Ireland. So, therefore, we need to divert roadway runoff into our fields, away from ditches, and away from surface water bodies. If you think about it, animals walk on roadways and contribute phosphorus, nitrogen, and indeed E. coli through uh, defecation. So my final slide, I want to leave you with breaking the pathway and some examples. We need to divert water off our roadways into fields, and Dara is going to look at more uh, of what being done in fields and use simple structures to divert this water at regular intervals on particular sections. We need to consider engineered options in our open ditch systems. For example, where we guide our drainage systems into our open ditch systems and we treat, we drop the sediment, we slow the flow, we release, um, we drop carbon, we drop nitrogen and we drop phosphorus in our open channel systems before they affect uh, surface water quality. And with that, Mark, I can hand over to you again. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Owen. Uh, excellent overview of the issues and, and that connection between uh, the, 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 the source and the pathway. So, Dari, you're going to give us a, a, an overview of some of the, um, the mitigation options uh, available or being, being uh, explored. Um, and We'll take some questions then afterwards. So over yes. to you, Mark. Thank you, Mark. So hopefully you can see this screen now. So as Mark says, I'm going to give a, a brief presentation on sediment and water quality. As a background, we're pretty familiar now over the last few years in relation to water quality. Uh, we've heard presentations here as part of the signpost series, and we've seen reports from the EPA highlighting the decline in water quality over recent decades. We're familiar with various pressures impacting on water quality. We have a good enough handle on the story in relation to nitrates or phosphorus as Owen was, was presenting on there as well. What is less clear is the impact in relation to sediment and how sediment is impacting on water quality. Uh, we will hear later on this month, probably in relation to ASAP or LawPro, that they're encountering sediment as a more significant challenge than we heretofore believed it to be in relation to impacting on water quality. The other challenge with sediment is that it's not really included that well in relation to our water framework directive assessments. And there is, we are unclear really in relation to what the thresholds for sediment should be within our systems. So as a brief background, well, what is sediment? Well, sediment is a, a natural phenomenon. It derives from the weathering of rock or mineral or organic or soil material over time that can make its way into a water course. Land use can accelerate soil erosion and can result in delivery of, of excess sediment to these watercourses. And various different types of land use can become a source of sediment, such as bare soil eh, from, from ploughing or from reseeding. Cattle access points or cattle trampling and poaching riverbanks can provide a, a ready source of sediment adjacent to a receiving water body. But then also other land uses, such as, as poorly sited forestry eh, on shallow soils, adjacent to a watercourse can also become a source of sediment because of wind throw and the available root sources associated with some of this land use. So when these excess sediments become 
a, a problem, then we need to start looking at mitigation and further down the line. So what really constitutes excess sediment? So a way to look at it is looking at the sediment yield from a catchment uh, that's making its way from the terrestrial landscape into the watercourse. So the yield from the land making its way into a watercourse. And numerous studies have been undertaken on this throughout the world. And the way they generally look at it on, on the x-axis here, we have catchment size of varying catchment scales in kilometer squared and one kilometer square is 100 hectares. And then on our y-axis, we have the yield in tons per kilometer squared. So how much of the sediment is in catchments of varying sizes. And up until recently, there's been a pretty good idea and plenty of research in relation to various different countries throughout the UK and throughout mainland Europe as well, across various scales of catchment size, resulting in a diversity or a variability in relation to the delivery or the sediment yield within these catchments. Relatively less was known from an Irish landscape up until relatively recently. So in the last couple of years we've looked at the sediment yield associated with five of the ACP or the Agricultural Catchments Program catchments and these are intensive catchments. We saw that the yield ranged across these five catchments from about eight tons per kilometer squared up to about 25 tons per kilometer squared. So there's variability between these catchments. But then even within the catchment, there's variability as well. So these figures are based on three to four years of data that were averaged out. But even from year to year, within the one catchment, we're seeing variability. And these are intensive catchments. But we're still seeing that they're significantly less than similar studies on similar catchment sizes throughout Europe. When we start looking at some of our extensive catchments, and these are studies that were undertaken by us down in the freshwater pearl mussel catchments down in Kerry, the sediment yield per kilometre squared is very low, down to less than three tonnes per hectare in some of these very, very extensive catchments. So we're seeing that Irish situation, even though it is a challenge and it is a problem, it is less than what we're experiencing elsewhere in Europe. When we delve a little bit further into our intensive catchments and our ACP catchments, there are two significant drivers you'd expect to be influencing the sediment yield in these watercourses. You're looking at soil drainage class, as Owen mentioned previously, from, from well-drained to poorly drained. And you'd also expect land use to have an impact in relation to the sediment yield. So the difference between, let's say, grassland and arable. So when we looked at the five ACP catchments, they were broadly split into two uh, land use types, three of which, so three grassland catchments and two arable catchments and then we're split between poorly drained to well drained. And what we're seeing in this graph here is, regardless of the land use type, when we're looking at well drained soil, there's pretty similar sediment yield associated with these land use types at a catchment scale. Over 10, over 10 tons for our arable, just under 10 tons for our grassland. Similarly, at our poorly drained catchment, there's not that much difference in relation to the sediment yield between the land use type. Again, about 24, 25 tons per hectare for both arable and for grassland. So where we're seeing a significant difference is in relation to the soil drainage class. When we're comparing our arable catchments between poorly drained and well-drained soil, poorly drained at about 25 tons per hectare, down to well-drained at about 12 tons per hectare, a significant difference between the two. And similarly, within our grassland land use, between poorly drained and grassland, or poorly drained and well drained, we're seeing a significant difference. So now that we know that there's a difference in yield between different catchment types, even if they are all the one intensive land use or, or between main land uses, what are the main sediment sources that we're seeing within these catchments? So we undertook this thing called sediment fingerprinting to try and identify the various different sources of sediment that are making their way into the watercourse. In our poorly drained grassland type, as we said, about 24 tonnes per kilometre squared, we're seeing that 70% of the sediment is derived from the channel bank or from the drainage, open drain ditches and, and the banks of the open drains. When we look at this on a seasonal basis, as Owen was saying, as we're seeing most of the rainfall over the winter months, this is also coinciding with most of the sediment delivery. This is because soils are becoming saturated, there's more intense rainfall, but also more intense rainfall results in more intensive flow within the watercourse, resulting in greater erosion of the riverbanks. And also there's less vegetation on the riverbanks to protect against some of this scour. When we look at our arable catchment, again, half the amount of yield that we were seeing in our poorly drained grassland, but similarly, we're seeing 60% is derived from the channel. Now, where we're seeing significant difference here is in our arable on poorly drained soil. We're seeing 75% of the yield of this 25 tons per kilometer squared 
is derived from field topsoils. And again, when we look at this on a seasonal basis, these are our winter months here. Most of the sediment is being transported in our arable catchments during the winter months in both occasions. And as Owen said, it's coinciding with periods of intense rainfall and also coinciding with periods post-harvest when you have a bare soil, so you have a readily available source of sediment, and then you have the rainfall to mobilize the sediment and it can make its way into the watercourse. When we look at our sediment sources in our extensive catchments, again, it's worth noting these are very, very extensive catchments, three of which are down in Kerry, so the Brida, the Onru, and the Keel Duff. We're seeing differences in relation to the sediment yield and the sediment sources between the different catchments. Again, the scale of sediment yield is very low, 2.7 tonnes for our own roux, up to about 5.5 tonnes for our bridal. But again, from a European context, that's very low. The channel bank as a source is relatively similar between the three catchment types. Where we are seeing a significant area of interest is in relation to this kind of yellow colour, which is our improved grassland. So improved grassland across the catchment types is delivering about 20% of the sediment yield, even though it only constitutes about 5% of the catchment area. So that's, that's significant. The other area of interest is in relation to forestry. So for the Owen Roo and the Keel Duff, there are elements of, or there are areas of forestry within the catchment. And we're seeing that this forestry is a significant source of sediment, despite the fact that it's established historical and by and large unmanaged forestry. But because it was poorly located in the first place 30 or 40 years ago, it is still a source of sediment 30 or 40 years later. So what is the impact of this sediment on our ecosystem, on our ecology or on our streams? So by and large, sediment has a physical impact in relation to the riverbed habitats. So it can result in clogging of gravels and reducing the dissolved oxygen within the riverbed. And this has a significant impact on many of our more sensitive species and some of our indicator species, such as the freshwater pearl mussel, that need clean, well oxygenated uh, gravels to spawn and to live. Similarly for some of our salmonid species. Sediment can also, when it's in suspension, result in turbidity, so in cloudiness of water, as we're seeing here, adjacent to a cattle access point. So this can reduce light penetration through the water column, which is impacting on primary production within the watercourse. But it can also impact on feeding of fish and on invertebrates general and specialist invertebrates, such that they can't feed appropriately. And again, it impacts on the ecology of the ecosystem. More recently, we looked at a, a study to assess the difference between sediment and other stressors within a watercourse. And we set up multiple stressor experiment. Uh, we mimicked channel beds using these uh, trays that were continuously fed with water from a nearby river. We manipulated sediment, phosphorus, and nitrogen individually and combined. And then we replicated the stream bed by putting in gravels and stones to replicate the stream bed and we inoculated it with invertebrates. And we assessed the response of the invertebrates to these various different stressors. And as a very brief summary for a very long experiment, the conclusion was that sediment under these systems was the most significant stressor on aquatic ecology. So now that we know that there's a source, now that we know that there's difference in yields, and now that we know that it has an impact on ecology, how do we go about mitigating against the challenges associated with sediment? And you are familiar probably with this triad of source, pathway, and receptor. Where we have a source, such as bare soil, where we have a pathway, such as overland flow, and where we have a receptor, such as a receiving water. When you have all three of those, you have a risk. If you remove any of the three, then you remove the risk. Remove the source, or remove the pathway, or remove the receptor, then you no longer have the risk. So for the remainder of the presentation, we're going to focus on the pathway, as Owen mentioned. How do we break the pathway to stop sediment getting from the source into the receptor? And we're going to focus specifically on riparian buffer strips. So riparian buffer strips are bands of land adjacent to water bodies that are planted with permanent vegetation. The theory is relatively straightforward. You have saturated soil, as Owen said, where you have overland flow or surface flow. This surface flow containing nutrients or sediment or pesticides then meets the buffer strip and the vegetation within the buffer strip uh, intercepts the pollutants through sedimentation or infiltration or dilution and prevents these nutrients from making their way into the watercourse. And that is fine in theory when you have uniform overland flow. But what about situations like this where you don't have uniform overland flow, where you have undulations within the landscape and you have areas of converging and diverging flow? such that flow is channelized in certain parts of the field and makes its way down to the watercourse. 
when it gets to the buffer strip because of this channelized flow, the buffer strip becomes inundated, so it can't cope with the amount of flow. Then also you have large sections of the buffer strip that aren't subjected to any overland flow, so there's relatively little buffering going on. Here we see an example from a catchment with a relatively modest slope, and it has a riparian buffer strip following GAEC guidelines, two meters wide. But because we've had poorly drained soil, we have a source of sediment here in relation to the bare soil, we have intensive rainfall, which is mobilizing the sediment, and now you have an overland flow pathway and a receptor. So despite the, the presence of a buffer strip, because it's poorly managed and poorly sited in this occasion, it, the sediment is making its way into the watercourse. So that leads us to Smarter Buffers, a new project that's uh, in collaboration between Chagask and the James Hutton Institute and funded by the EPA. And we're looking at designing and managing buffer strips and targeting them to these hydrologically sensitive areas as Owen mentioned. And it's going back to this idea of a right measure in a right place that we've heard over the last number of weeks as part of these signpost series. So what is the right place or how do we go about identifying the right place for some of these riparian buffers? Well, you can use technology such as LIDAR technology to identify areas of elevation within the landscape. So you can identify elevation, but also you can identify depressions within the landscape so you can see where there's going to be overland flow. You can overlay lap maps in relation to potential sources. This is a map of P, for example, so high P index could be a source of P, but you could do similarly for sources of sediment, such that you have your source on, on the right-hand side, now you have your potential pathway on the left-hand side, and when you combine the two, you can start seeing these flow maps where there's overland flow with a source. You identify, so this is some work that is being done by Diffuse Tools, which is again being funded by the EPA. You identify areas of flow, you identify delivery points, such that if you then target your mitigation to these delivery points, you can reduce the, the cost of implementation of typical traditional linear riparian buffer strips. Equally importantly, you can start identifying natural mitigation features. You can identify depressions within the landscape that are acting as kind of sediment traps or ponding within the landscape, temporary ponding such that sediment falls out of suspension and it doesn't make its way into the watercourse. You can also identify natural mitigation features such as areas of scrub or areas of woodland, many of which are ineligible for single farm payment, but are playing a very important role in this instance in relation to mitigating against a water quality and the delivery of sediment, along with other ecosystem services such as biodiversity. So by characterizing the flow, we can use the information that we've gathered in relation to the right place to start informing information in relation to what is the most appropriate measure for this right place. So here we have a, a flow map for one of the catchments as the ACP, and you'd expect one of the fields here has relatively uniform overland flow. You'd expect the mitigation measure that you target in this instance is going to differ significantly from the mitigation measure you're going to target on the bottom instance where you have more periodic but channelized flow. So now that we've an idea about the right place, how do we go about undertaking work in relation to the right measure? And Riparian measures are widely implemented and have been widely implemented in Ireland through compulsory or optional measures over the last 20 or 30 years. We're familiar with the good agricultural and environmental conditions stipulations for two meters wide and no fertilizer and no pesticide, or more recently 25 years of agri-environment schemes from REPS to AOS to GLOSS, again have linear riparian margins where there's no fertilizer or pesticides, and more recently where they're recommending no, no stop access. But by and large, policy in this area has been relatively conservative in relation to riparian design. So we have seen various widths from three meters to 30 meters, for example, in relation to glass, but wider margins are not very popular and there's generally or frequently a low uptake amongst participants. Equally, wider margins are not necessarily more effective at buffering than some, some of our narrower margins. The buffering ability of a riparian margin kind of maxes out over a certain width. Most of the buffering starts in the first few meters and over a certain width beyond that width of 10, 20, 50, or 10, 15 or 20 meters, there's relatively little additional buffering. Now the wider margin will have benefits for, for biodiversity or could have benefits for carbon storage, but not necessarily additional benefits for water quality. Equally, as we saw with our right place, if these wider margins aren't targeted to the right place, then it's not going to have additional buffering abilities. 
So we need to start exploring alternative management, alternative planting, alternative design for our riparian margins. And again, this is some of the work that we're exploring as part of the Sparta Buffers project. So there's a variety of different mitigation measures that we can implement at field, farm and landscape scale. We can assess, and we're hoping to do this with part of the smarter buffers, what is the impact of undertaking just a regulatory minimum, just a two meter wide margin with no pesticides and fertilizer application. What's the impact of that on water quality when we have gathered under information in relation to overland flow and in relation to some of the potential sediment or nutrients that could be delivered to the watercourse. We can compare this regulatory minimum to linear grass buffer strips that are wider now, maybe six meters wide, as opposed to the two meter wide that we have for our regulatory minimum. We can then explore what's the impact if we exclude cattle in relation to this. So now you're improving the, the water quality benefits, but you're limiting, a, you're also improving limited additionality in relation to some of the habitat improvement. You can start expanding further. You can start managing the different vegetation or planting different vegetation in relation to these buffer strips. So grasses have benefits for certain nutrients, whereas trees and scrub will have benefits for other nutrients and for sediment. And you can start comparing the differences between the two. And you can come up with a variety of different riparian managements and establishment techniques, such that you can start treating the different uh, stressors, be they sediment or nutrients within the landscape. And you can start moving down towards denitrification buffers, towards buffers that can target more soil erosion, all the way down to buffers that are going to intercept subsurface drainage, which most of our traditional linear buffers neglect to do so. So you can have a variety of different techniques that can be targeted specifically to the landscape that the buffer is going to be targeted within, and also consider the, the pollutant that the buffer is hoping to address. Now it's important to note that all of these are going to have a different cost associated with them, and there's also going to be different levels of acceptance. So you can imagine that the cost associated with undertaking the regulatory minimum is going to be different than the cost uh, to undertake some of the measures that down at the bottom of this table, where there's high management measures and more land use might be needed to undertake this measure. So there's obviously going to be an associated increased cost. On the flip side, you could imagine that there's going to be reduced acceptance as you move down the scale. It'll be more difficult for some landowners and policymakers maybe to accept some of these suggestions. So the undertaking the regulatory minimum has wide acceptance, but as you move down to more highly managed and more specific and targeted riparian buffer management designs, the acceptance might wane. So it's important that we start gathering some of this information, or hoping to do this as part of smarter buffers, that we work with the various stakeholders in in policy or research or with farmers and advisors and water managers, such that we can get, gather the relevant and the appropriate research that's required. We can identify some of the stressors that are in the landscape, and we can work with landowners to see what would be acceptable or what is practical. And when we have all of these various stakeholders engaging with one another, then we can start designing appropriate smarter buffers for the right measure in the right place. So Shin Shin, so thank you and back to you, Mark. Dara, thanks very much for that excellent presentation and a really good overview of, of how the, the different measures can operate in a policy context because oftentimes we, you know, there are measures investigated uh, with not really proper uh, attention paid to the acceptability or the cost associated with them. Uh, Dara, I just noticed in your presentation you focused very much on the, the pathway uh, and receptor part of, of the, the, the process. What about the source side of the, the process? Is there much work uh, done in terms of what, what we can do to reduce um, uh, the source of, of sediment? I, I know, for example, in a, a tillage environment or arable setting that you know, con uh, contour plowing and those types of measures are, are available and, and used in, in some countries. Um, what sort of measures are, are being recommended uh, within either arable or, or grassland setting? Or is there much that can be done there? There is stuff that can be done, obviously. So again, if you can reduce the sources of the sediments, such as bare soil, then you can reduce the amount of sediment that's making its way into water courses. We are behind other European countries, probably in relation to some of these measures being incorporated in agri-environment schemes. As we're seeing, and as Owen mentioned, when soil is saturated, and most of this is occurring during the intense rainfall of the winter months, if we can reduce the amount of sediment that's available during these winter months, such as we're seeing with our arable land, such we don't have bare soil, such that you have green cover, for example, to reduce the source. 
also mitigation measures such as trying to avoid targeting arable land to these areas of poorly drained soil because it's more readily available or it can make itself available. And then another area to reduce the source, I suppose, is we're seeing with cattle access points, uh, where you have cattle access making its way into a water course, then that's a source and a delivery pathway. So if you can remove some of these cattle access points, you can reduce the amount of sediment that's making its way into the water course. Thanks, thanks Dara. Owen, you talked a lot about these uh, increased uh, prevalence of, of intense rainfall periods during summer months. Uh, we're likely to see more of that in the future, according to the, the climate uh, change uh, scientists, that we're going to see more intense weather events. You know, what does that uh, lead for the, the, the future of, of um, how, how do we manage those future events uh, if, if uh, we're to, to manage or to farm uh, without having a, an impact on water quality or to minimize that impact? Yeah, well, I suppose the, the important thing to think about is we're getting about the same amount of rainfall in the year, but the distribution is changing. Mm. Let's say in Wexford, we get about a thousand mils of rain. That's one meter of rain, if you want to think of it like that. Normally, as Dara was saying, we're hydrologically active period being from September, you know, all the way to, to, to April. But what we're finding, take this year as an example, we have very, very dry periods. The last week has been very wet and it's July, right? Um, so these things are changing and that means very, very different things. Summer months, we actually think of the groundwater system being slightly disconnected. So in other words, we've had less rainfall, the water table is decreasing down and that breaks the connectivity. So if we're now introducing rainfall events in the summer periods, other pathways can become active. I mentioned roadways, for example. Um, if we get uh, you know, rainfall onto hard surfaces um, and those roadways are connected to open ditches and directly to surface water bodies, a small amount of rainfall could mobilize nutrients very quickly into rivers. Mm -hmm. Same in open ditch systems. Um, you know, a very, very small rainfall event can contribute some nutrients. So we should think of these things as loads. You can have a small nutrient source, but the, the rainfall can mobilize that and the load or the shock effect could be high in a very small period. Thanks, Owen. Um, yeah, I mean, that the design of roadways is really important. So uh, in that case, you know, to reduce that, the, I suppose, the, the energy and the, the, the speed at which water is flowing on, on waterways. And in fact, Changis has um, uh, incorporated this into some of the training that we do uh, around farmyard design uh, with, with agri-professionals. I suppose it's also a good opportunity to flag that Chagas offers a land drainage course, a, uh, an accredited course in, in land drainage for professionals who are designing drainage systems, that they are done in an appropriate way. I suppose from both of your presentations, it's very obvious that a, a tailored approach is, is what is required at a farm level, that having generic uh, recommendations just doesn't work because we have such a uh, diverse uh, soil types and, and landscape types and so on. Would you agree, Dara, that maybe we do need a bit more training in, in these areas, particularly around riparian designs, uh, design for agri-professionals or those working in, in the agri-food sector? Absolutely. I think we can provide research and we can learn from research throughout Europe where they're a bit more advanced in some of this work, but I do definitely think that we can need to start disseminating some of this research and provide training to advisors or to practitioners, to farmers as well. So some of the, the work that we're hoping to do with Smarter Buffers is to come up with these decision support tools for policymakers, but also for advisors and farmers out in the field. So it can kind of disseminate or the, the wide range of science that's behind the decision support tool can be made in a more kind of a manageable approach such that they can use this tool to identify what's the likely source, to identify what type of hill slope they're managing on, and then it can use this to reduce the number of measures from maybe eight or nine potential measures down to two or three measures that would be most suitable for them. Pat, I see a few questions coming in through our uh, the Q&A uh, section there, some, some questions. Uh, just to remind everybody that that facility is open now. If you want to submit your questions, uh, please do send them through to us. And I think a, a number of questions in, in the whole area of, of, of policy and given the fact that we have 
uh, a review of the, the cap and, and potential coming in under eco schemes and, and agri-environmental schemes? Are there a, a number of, if you're having a conversation with the, with, with the policy makers, are there a number of areas that you would uh, focus on in terms of, of uh, tr trying to change the way we do policy and, and are there things we should be focusing on? So will I let you go first, Owen, or? I don't mind, Darren. So I think for me, there's a few very, very interesting projects, um, you know, EPA-funded projects in particular, and some co-funded with Department of Ag, Dara's, in a few, I'm in a few. And it's really about, you know, what, where are the priorities on farms in terms of this over, you know, these, I call them slow infiltration systems, okay? So they're very much pinch points on the farm. And again, trying to slow the flow. If you think about our landscapes, we, we have done, over the millennia, we have tried to speed up water leaving our landscapes, right? It makes, makes common sense that if we can get water away faster, we can then, you know, farm the land more efficiently, et cetera. But now what we're trying to do is, I suppose, slow things down to a certain degree, okay? If you slow stuff down, you're, you're controlling the load of nutrients leaving the system. And therefore, we need to start looking at different parts of that infrastructure within the landscape differently. Open drains, for example, is one of mine. Um, my things along with Karen Daly, really thinking about, you have huge opportunities in areas like that in terms of dropping sediment, like Dara was saying, but also carbon in that sediment. Okay, very, very important on our agricultural systems. And then decreasing the load of nitrogen and phosphorus in those systems. Um, roadways may be new here, but it certainly isn't new in other parts of the world and breaking that connectivity. So it's incorporating these, these channels or conduits for loss into agri-environmental schemes, etc., cetera, uh, where we can then implement change. We can intercept the pathway and you know, minimize minimize the load of these things to surface water. Um, and I just want to say one thing as well is that with all of these engineered solutions, you'll never minimize absolutely 100%. A lot of these systems are designed with a target amount in, in mind, such as about for nitrogen, for example, or phosphorus, typically only about 30% of the, the load will be treated in this way. So we need to be cognizant of, you know, really taking care of business right across the landscape, mm -hmm. identifying these pinch points and attacking them head on, and, but always remembering to take care of everything uh, first. And then managing our expectations about how long this is going to take. It's a long-term commitment. Um, mitigation is a long-term commitment and some of these mitigation measures will also need maintenance uh, by landowners. I just come in there as well, and again, building on what Owen said in relation to our, our drainage network. So we've had 30 years almost now of agri-environment measures, and we have had very few measures that are specifically targeted to drains. So you, if you would imagine that here is an area where you could uh, explore the inclusion of in-drain treatment. The land is already removed from production, so it might be more acceptable from a landowner's point of view to target some of your measures. And then, as Owen said, you could have these multifunctional measures. So they're still facilitating uh, the role of a drain to help in relation to the productive element. But you can manage it for water quality, but then you could also manage it from biodiversity and a carbon storage point of view for land that's already removed from production. In relation to policy, Pat, I suppose another area that I do think needs a consideration is in relation to these areas that are already removed from, from eligibility, such as certain ponds, certain areas of scrub, uh, certain scrubby buff buffer strips that are already there that might be ineligible for your single farm payment, even though they're providing a multitude of ecosystem services, the farmer is, is kind of perversely encouraged to remove them because they're losing out on their single farm payment. So that's an area that policy could explore, not just from a water quality point of view, but also from a biodiversity and a carbon point of view as well. Okay, there's a, a couple of questions in the whole area of, of stocking rate and, and in terms of, of uh, the, the, the nitrogen uh, vulnerable zones or the fact that we have a, a single zone in Ireland. Um, is, uh, is there an element to which stocking rate is, is, um, has, is having an impact or is it more down to, to land management around those stocking rates? In 
Sorry. Well, from, from a, a sediment point of view, so anything that can create or result in a source of sediment, such as bare soil, can, can influence the amount of sediment yield that's going to be in a watercourse. So if stocking rate adjacent to a watercourse is resulting in poached on poorer grain soil, is resulting in poached soil adjacent to the watercourse, well then that's going to be a challenge for water quality. As I mentioned previously, where stock are making their way or getting access into watercourses, not only are they destabilizing the bank, but then they're also churning up bed sediment as well. So that's influencing the amount of sediment getting into the stream, but also degrading the, the bed habitat as well. So there's, there's challenges and there's, there's difficulties associated with that as well. Well, I can comment in terms of, um, you must think of the landscape in two different ways again, you know, the, the, the across the surface versus the, the vertical pathway when you think of this. So, um, both myself and Dara looked at the critical source area. It's all about load. Okay, so you can have in the surface pathways, you can have small concentrations, but a large amount of water, that's really the same as a large source with a small amount of water. It's about the, the total, uh, I suppose, kilos of N or kilos of P leaving that pathway. In terms of infiltration, there is a direct you know, correlation. The, the higher the load, the higher the surplus, you know, at one meter. So that nitrogen surplus is very, very important. To, we need to decrease the surplus, leave one meter zone that feeds this tank. I, 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 I kind of call it, it's like an offshore account of nitrogen in the subsurface. We need to influence that. And that's the store of nitrogen that will influence water quality in groundwater and in surface water. And there is not a direct correlation between end surplus and water quality. And it's very much soil type driven. You can have the same surplus in a free drained and a poorly drained site, but the result in terms of water quality can be quite different. And that's where a lot of research, I think, needs to go into. It's that black box, the organic nitrogen component. We need to know an awful lot about that. It's not a steady state relationship. It's a very, very dynamic system. And we need more information and knowledge in that in that area. We have a question here in relation to the, I suppose, measuring the success of these mitigation measures. How how many tests or how often, uh, and, and when, what about before, during, and after high rainfall? I know we have the agricultural catchments program, and then we also have the uh, the ASIP program, which has uh, monitoring that's going on there. I mean. But if we were to look at, I suppose, I, I, I guess this question is in the, the broader context, if we're looking at uh, measures coming in through an agro-environmental scheme, how can we uh, be sure that these measures are working and are having the desired impact? Okay, so again, we can, we can learn from work that has been done elsewhere. Ireland, as I said, is a little bit behind some of our European counterparts in relation to exploring these mitigation measures. And significant work has been undertaken in Europe looking at the, the efficacy of various riparian treatments other than just the traditional long linear buffer strips. So then you can see, we can learn from those measures. Also, we need to be familiar with moving away from the one size fits all approach to the more targeted and bespoke measures, depending on what the nutrient or depending on what the sediment threat is to the watercourse. And then also depending on the soil type of the land use, because as Owen said, you have different areas of, of flow. So there, I think we have enough information to start learning from what has been done elsewhere, such that we can build on the work that other countries have done and learn from some of their mistakes, such as Denmark, which implemented a, a wider riparian margin as a uniform measure, and it didn't really have great uptake and was unpopular amongst landowners, and then it was deemed to be a, an inappropriate measure in the end. So we can learn from what other countries have done in this regard. Question here in relation to the, I suppose, the evolution of advice over the last 30 years in relation to drainage. Um, I know some some commentators have called it that the highway for for nutrients and sediment to, to access our, our water courses, um, and the so the question is here is uh, uh, do you think Chagas's advice to farmers has been appropriate over the years? Um, and when uh, we see when we see so much drainage work continuing on farms uh, and so poor buffer zones. I guess the question is here, and it links into my earlier comments about the land drainage course that's an offer where it talks about appropriate drainage uh, system. But I, I think it's fair to say that the, the message has evolved significantly since uh, 30 years ago on. Yeah, 
I think uh, what I really should say is that the knowledge was always within the organization, you know, long before I started. The, I suppose it's the rollout of that information. In other countries, if you think about contractors that install drainage systems would have gone, you know, would have been trained appropriately in drainage and soil management. So what myself, Pat Tui, especially in Moore Park, would have decided that we needed uh, some drainage manual first off, uh, which certainly will be updated over time. It needs to be updated. Um, but the course really takes on a variety of people, farmers, landowners, but also we're trying to, you know, contractors themselves. And what we found in the past was that drainage was just implemented right across the landscape, regardless of soil type. That was the major drawback of our method. So in other words, what your neighbor did, I will do. What I completed in one field, I'll complete in the next field. And this has led to inappropriate land drainage designs right across the country. Now there is an EIA in place, um, in, in other words, that new land drainage um, jobs, there is a screening process, so people be cognizant of that, and that is very cognizant of environmental um, issues. Um, so what, I, what I'm, I suppose, constantly um, advocating is drainage, but drainage, appropriate drainage, correct installation, correct drainage um, spacing, and in the correct location. And going forward, we really, really need to start thinking of the environment um, and the role of drainage systems in, you know, um, releasing nutrients and carbon um, to surface waters. And we really need, as Dara was saying, we can use the, the infrastructure that's there. It's not going away. These are installed systems. We need to adapt them and we can use them in an environmental way in terms of mitigation, using open ditches, slowing the water down, water table control, also has greenhouse gas emission potential, and looking at drainage in a different perspective. And that's where the research is going now. And so on. Um, we're getting tight on time now. Uh, Pat, were there any burning questions that you want to yeah, do? There's, to the there's a couple of questions in relation to the uh, type of, of plant material, or plant growth in, in buffer zones. What's, what's best? Is it best le just left as grass? Or, and then the role potentially of uh, forest strips uh, 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 for buffering? Yeah, so again, this comes back to what is the stressor that you're trying to prevent with your riparian buffer. Uh, for some of our sediment and particulate P associated with sediment, when you have a dense vegetation, you have a greater infiltration and, and greater interceptance of the sediment. And that was probably some of the challenge with previous schemes such as REPS, where you had, you, you fenced off your margin and you didn't manage it thereafter, such that you could have a gorse or something dominated the riparian margin, which had a very low understory growth and very low vegetative layer, such that it wasn't really intercepting. So you need dense vegetation. But then again, for some, it's important to note as well, you need to harvest, if we want to remove the pea from these systems, you need to harvest the vegetation. You need to take the pea out of the system. And the most appropriate way of doing that is to take the vegetation out or to harvest the vegetation with the pea. The pea doesn't break down over time like some of your nitrogen or some of your, or some of your uh, pesticides. So it's important that you, you harvest and manage the, the riparian margins appropriately, depending on what the stressor you're trying to intercept is. Okay, thanks, Dara. Uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. But some really interesting questions that we didn't get a chance to, to tackle were, you know, the role of uh, ponds and, and in the landscape and so on. So maybe we could deal with that in a future uh, webinar. But for now, uh, Dara Hulakan, uh, Owen Fenton, thank you very much for our, your presentations. Uh, Pat, thanks for assisting with the, uh, the, the questioning. And also a uh, big thank you to Yvonne Maher and Andy Boland, who are uh, our production team on the webinar series. I also want to give a special thanks to uh, Brendan Dunford and Patsy Curran, here based in the, the Burren in County Clare for facilitating me this morning to, to broadcast from the Burren. So uh, big thank you to, to both Patsy and Brendan for that. A reminder that today's uh, webinar is being recorded and will be available on the Chagas YouTube channel in the coming days, along with the presentation. Uh, next week, uh, I'll be speaking to Ruth Hennessy 
from the local authorities water program we'll be talking about uh, protecting natural waters through a catchment management approach so uh, we're looking forward to, to talking to roots uh, at the same time next friday so for now thank you very much for tuning in and we hope to see you next week thanks again you've been listening to the podcast version of the chagisk signpost series the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in irish farming Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson and thanks for listening.